0: They say singing is emotion amplified, and I do love this time of year. It's Christmas time, and we start to do our Christmas messages and uh, remember all of the great traditions that we have that come along with that as we celebrate the supreme miracle of Christianity, which is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that considered, we are not doing a very Christmassy message this morning. Uh, we'll start those next week. Uh, this morning, if you came, we are continuing our journey through uh, the Ten Words, also popularly known as the Ten Commandments, and we are up to Commandment 7. Uh, the law, if you remember in its entirety, is to serve as a mirror in which we see ourselves in light of God's character. It shows us that we are sinners in need of saving And that we can't live up to what would be Christ-likeness, what is true godliness. We fail to do good. We learn by looking at the law that its end is Christ. We learn that we need a savior and that he is the one who makes us righteous, who saves us and makes us right with God. And it's at that point we begin to understand the law as something romantic. Romantic. Something that tells us about God and how we can love him back in response to what he has done for us. And so we say to the law, to God's commands, that that your wish is my command. And we delight to live according to his precepts. With all that in mind, we're going to again rehearse, we've been trying to remember the Ten Commandments together, and so we've done a little fun mnemonic device, and so we're going to rehearse those once again this morning, all the way up to seven, we'll get the main idea, uh, set out our pattern for this morning, and then pray and get started. And so if you want to hold up one finger, we've been saying that our God is one and there's none beside him. We worship him alone. The second commandment we do, uh, like NC State Wolfpack sign, if you're a Wolfpack fan, uh, they do this too, and we say uh, it's kind of an idol. We're not going to bow down or make any graven images. We're not going to worship idols. Uh, Number three, we've kind of done the Hunger Games deal. You put the three fingers up like this, you can bring them to your lips and say, I'm not going to take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, Number four, I I did two hands with four, which maybe is eight, but we're just going to say four, and we say we're going to rest in Christ or keep the Sabbath day holy. Number five, we we brought to our head and said, honor your father and your mother. Uh, Number six, we grotesquely make one of our hands a gun and shoot the other one and say, do not kill, do not murder, is the better translation, do not murder. And then today, uh, number seven, we're going to take one hand and set it down like this, and we're going to take two fingers, and we're going to put them down there, and we're going to kind of walk them down the aisle together and remember that marriage is Between two people, not a bunch of people, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. And our main idea today is this, protect marriage. And the primary way I'm going to exhort you eventually when we get there, married couples, to protect marriage is by having great sex. Now, if you're single, the exhortation will be to glorify God with your celibacy. We're going to talk about sex, its proper context, its improper context, and its ultimate purpose. We're going to do so under two headings. God's design for sex, which will be the majority of our time, and then safeguarding sex, which will be uh, the end of our time and more uh, application heavy. All that in mind, now that you have your map, let's pray and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and submit ourselves to it. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That you would give us your Holy Spirit that our dead and hard hearts might come alive and be changed. Your word is not always easy to receive oftentimes it stands at loggerheads with the culture in which we live, but we pray we would not be tossed to and fro by the winds of our society, but that we might be carried along by the power of your Holy Spirit. Come and meet us now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, context again, God has drawn the people out of Egypt and into relationship with himself. He saved them from slavery and for worship. And now as the people tremble along with the mountain at Mount Sinai, God is on the mountain, his presence is there, it's wrapped in smoke, there are trumpets and there is lightning, and he is speaking to them the ten words. And in verse 14 he speaks the seventh word. Do not Commit adultery. Why? Because marriage and sex teach about God and his promises to his people. Further, monogamous marriages will lead to a more stable and flourishing society. The penalty for adultery, we'll see later on, is just as severe as the penalty for dishonoring your mother and your father or taking the life of another. The penalty is Death, And I can't help but notice, as we've worked through uh, the ten words, how many activities that we typically file under uh, private and personal or none of y'all's business. The Bible files under, yes, very personal, but never private. Because everything you do affects the people around you. It impacts public life. Everything you do affects other people. I mean, sex isn't just about two consenting adults behind closed doors. What what those adults do impacts those close to them and reverberates through society. And the penalty for adultery, that is, any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage, is death. Leviticus 20.10 says it this way, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor. Both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Douglas Wilson comments on this verse, Certainly an adulterer is worthy of death. A man who will betray his wife will betray anyone and anything. Adultery is treason against the family, and God hates it. Friends, God hates that which threatens to destroy his creation. He hates that which threatens to harm his people. God hates adultery. It is a sin, and sin leads to death and destruction always. But God's design for life is not aimed at killing our joy, but at killing that which will kill our ultimate joy. God has designed sex to be part and parcel to marriage Because sex is the human signature on the divine marriage license. It's how a man and a woman seal their mysterious and holy union. It's how two become one, fully, finally, for life. When God establishes marriage as a creation ordinance, after he's given Adam his bride and Adam sang that first love song, which sounds kind of lame in our language, like bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, like you were made for me. It's like saying, you complete me. He sings her that song, and then God says this as he joins them together in Genesis 2, 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds or cleaves with his wife, and they become one flesh. A man leaves his old life and begins a new life as one with his wife. He bonds with, clings to, cleaves to his wife, and this is confirmed and pictured in their becoming one flesh. The covenant of marriage is completed or consummated via sexual intercourse. But what's happening when God joins Adam and Eve together in marriage is that God is setting a precedent for this most basic of human institutions. The man and the woman belong to, and in a very real sense become one with, One another. Their marriage is an exclusive relationship marked by intimacy and governed by promises. Both the intimacy and the promises are physically expressed through sexual intercourse. A married couple is committed to one another. They give themselves to one another. They are loyal to one another and they are one. In marriage, one plus one equals one. It's terrible math. But it's good theology. A husband and a wife must must be devoted to each other exclusively. And we see that the seventh commandment is primarily about protecting marriage. Marriage needs to be protected because ultimately it teaches us about God. Behind this prohibition is something wonderful. That's marriage. That's what's being protected. Marriage is an exclusive relationship marked by intimacy and governed by promises. And it exists to teach us about God. I mean, marriage from the very beginning was meant to point beyond our broken world to the restored world that's yet to come. Marriage has always been about God and the gospel. Paul writes of it in Ephesians 5, quite famously, starting with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word this is Paul quoting Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it, marriage, sexual activity, refers to Christ and the church. Paul is explaining the great mystery and meaning of marriage for us, which is this. Each marriage paints a picture of salvation. Brothers and sisters, your marriage is to be an acting out of the gospel. Ideally, husbands, you will love your wives fiercely. You will lay down your lives for them daily by denying your selfishness and your pride and your comfort, and you will love them as one whose blood is spilt and whose hearts beat on their behalf for their good and God's glory. Ideally, wives, you will love your husbands by devoting yourself to them. As the church devotes herself to Jesus, you will love relentlessly by daily denying yourself to serve him in happy submission to the Lord Jesus for his good and God's glory. Human marriage has always been about God. Sam Albert comments, human marriage, we see repeatedly, is to point us to the ultimate marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. It is a signpost to the big thing God is doing in the universe drawing together a people to belong to his son. That vision explains the contours and boundaries we see in Scripture's teaching about marriage. Once we unpack it, we see why God insists that sex is for marriage, since only in a covenantal relationship with him do we have the ability to be vulnerable and intimate. We see that marriage is between one man and one woman, since God brings together two unlike yet complementary beings in a union we see why Christians are to marry only those in the faith, since our union with Christ means we cannot painlessly unite with someone who does not also belong to him. In light of the meaning of marriage, these strictures make sense. When it comes to God's sexual ethic, there's clear rationale for what's commanded. It's at this point many ask, isn't this just repressive, anachronistic? Is God just a kill joy. As we've said already, God isn't aimed at killing our joy, but at killing that which would kill our joy. Most don't believe that though. Most folks believe that to be truly happy and fully happy is to have no restrictions in one's life, to be completely and utterly independent. This myth to be happy that you must follow your heart without any inhibitions has been swallowed hook line and sinker by many in our culture and maybe even many of us the the myth is often spread through literature and film and especially song in 1984 the band triumph told us follow your heart you've got to follow your heart living for today forget about tomorrow follow your heart any other way will lead to sorrow don't wait any longer follow your heart in 1988 roxette told us listen to your heart and in 2006, Celine Dion told us, let your heart decide. And I can say with the utmost confidence, I'm sure there's a very popular song out there now that has to do with listening to your heart and following your heart. But, but the Bible paints a different picture for us, right? In Jeremiah 17:9, we are told that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us there is a way that seems right in the heart of a man, but in the end, its way is death, our heart's lie and often lead us to destruction. I think you know this to be true. I think you can think of uh, some types of things you've wanted to do that would not be good for you, that would not lead to your happiness. Uh, For example, eating, right? I, I have a strong desire for food that actually tastes good, And so uh, if you go to lunch with me uh, at one of the breweries around here, I'm likely to order six wings, only the flats, because those are the parts that I like best. Uh, I'm going to get some fries, probably a beer, and and maybe a Caesar salad to, you know, just watch my figure a little bit. That's the meal my heart desires. Now, Now imagine a few years from now, I go to the doctor and she says to me, look, Justin, if you want to be healthy, you want to not have heart issues, you need to take a few visits to the salad bar, all right? Maybe eat some kale every once in a while. Now, what am I going to respond? But doctor, I want to listen to my heart. And she's like, your heart's going to be dead very, very soon if you do. Right? It's not for my good. Or or if somebody cuts you off in traffic, sometimes the desire of your heart is to, like, throw down right there. Some of you, I know, keep guns in your vehicles. That's not smart but I think some of you think about reaching for it and, you know, taking matters into your own hand. Justice, right? Sometimes following your heart can lead to destruction. We all desire things that are harmful for us. So why would we think that our sexual desires are always right? See, our hearts can easily lead us into slavery rather than freedom. It's like the fish whose heart tells him he would be happier and most free on land. If the fish decides that he's sick and tired of just being in that water, being constrained, and hops up onto the shore, well, his freedom will be very short-lived. The fish will die. If you try to free a fish by taking it out of the water and putting it on land, you're not helping it. You're killing it. The fish is freest when it's in water because it's designed to be in water. Here's the point. Real freedom is found not in living by our desire, but by our design. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but finding and living according to the right ones. We will be freest and most happy when we live according to God's design for all of life. Happiness and freedom are not found in following your heart, but in listening to God's voice. And that includes listening to God's voice on matters of sexuality in marriage. God makes clear throughout his word that any and all sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is a sin and a breach of the seventh commandment. Jesus' teaching on marriage confirms this in Matthew 19. Starting with verse 3, we read, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Jesus, now quoting Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is basically outlining a biblical vision and purpose of marriage. He's saying it's an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman until death do them part. And notice how, though, the disciples respond with some exasperation in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, only those to whom it is given. The disciples are like, If marriage is just two people together forever, you're crazy to get married. Why would anybody do that? It'd be better to stay single. And Jesus remarks, You are absolutely right. But not everyone is cut out for singleness. He continues in verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Sam Alberry comments again, eunuchs were the celibates of their day, and Jesus indicates that their celibacy might be the result of birth or human intervention or voluntary decision. Whatever its cause, that Jesus goes there right after his disciples have balked at the commitment and seriousness of marriage shows that Jesus regards it as the only alternative. One marries or one remains single. There is no third possibility, whether a homosexual partnership or a heterosexual unmarried partnership. As far as Jesus is concerned, the godly alternatives before us are heterosexual marriage or celibacy. Any and all sexual activity that occurs outside of the bonds of marriage is a breach of the seventh commandment. It is sin. When we take sex out of its proper context, we worship it rather than the God who created it. And sexual sin is a very big deal. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, starting with verse 9, Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Some of you are like, well, that's just Paul. Jesus wouldn't say anything that radical. You're wrong. Jesus does. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Why will sexual sin keep someone from inheriting the kingdom of God? Why will sexual sin earn hell? Because the Bible has an extremely high view of sex. Biblically, sex is a transcendent physical and spiritual experience wherein the diversity of the genders are united as one. It is a mysterious mingling of the souls that is aimed at teaching us about our relationship with God. Marriage and sex are an enacted parable of the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. When we remove sex from its proper context, we are committing spiritual adultery against God. Jesus shows us that there is so much more to keeping the seventh commandment than just not committing physical adultery. I mean, we we see that we're guilty of breaking it uh, in terms of our spiritual waywardness as well as our emotional waywardness. Raises everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, we commit heart adultery every time we entertain sexual impulses unrelated to our spouse. Sexual sin is nothing to be trifled with. Jesus tells us to pluck out our eyes and to cut off our hands to avoid it. Don't go home and pluck out your eyes and cut off your hands, though. Right? He, he's using exaggerated language here to bolster his point. But don't, just because you're not going to actually cut off your hand or gouge out your eye, don't let that take, don't allow that to allow you to take Jesus any less seriously. He's very serious. We are to work to rid our lives of every hint of sexual immorality. I want to return to to 1 Corinthians 6 again. I read verses 9 and 10, but I'm going to continue on and read verse 11 as well. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. Do you think many of us and many in our culture are deceived in terms of what it means to live according to God's design for sexuality? Paul says, don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, Or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And then verse 11, and some of you, he's writing to Christians, used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And so you see, the big idea here is not, have you sinned, but are you changing The people in the Corinthian church, just like our church, guilty, 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 guilty. But once you meet Jesus, the answer becomes changing, 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 changing. You were washed. Such were some of you. But that's not the case anymore. You've met Jesus. Now, Christians are not perfect, but they're different than they were. They're in the process of becoming less like who they were and more like who Jesus is. You can't meet Jesus and not change. If that's your experience, I don't think you know Christ. Perhaps you're one that has made an idol of sex in your life, one that fits into these categories of heart adultery or physical adultery, spiritual adultery. Friend, I want you to know this doesn't mean that there's no hope for you. It simply means that you must repent and trust Christ and grow in grace. I always say, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. Jesus loves you where you are right now, but once you meet him, he will not leave you where you are right now. He will change you. Put your faith in him. When you put your faith in Jesus You are washed of your guilt, free from your shame, positionally justified before God. But practically, you are not yet perfected, and you are called to grow in grace by becoming in practice what you've been declared in Jesus, which is holy. That's what it means to be sanctified. We're changing more and more each day to be more like God. So the question is, how do we change? How do we pursue sexual purity? How do we safeguard against sexual sin? I'm going to start with some counsel for the singles in the room. This is really easy. Don't engage in sexual activity prior to being married. God's word tells you that even though you might desire this, its proper context is only within the confines of marriage. Additionally, I would encourage you to not become overly invested emotionally prior to marriage. What I mean is is there is a deep intimacy in terms of what we share and how we engage with the opposite sex that's also best reserved for marriage. To summarize, don't allow intimacy, the intimacy of marriage, into your relationship until you have the promises of marriage to govern that intimacy. So, if you're single, you keep the seventh commandment. You protect marriage by abstaining from sex outside of God's design for it, by abstaining from engaging in the kind of intimacy that needs to be governed by the promises of the covenant of marriage. Some practical counsel for the married folk among us this one's easy. Have great sex, have lots of sex. That's what the Bible says, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting with verse 3. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. And as one of my buddies famously paraphrased this, and again and again and again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self control. See, God's prescription for defending against sexual immorality is sexual morality, it's sex in your marriage with your spouse. Notice, too, that the only time you're supposed to not engage in sexual activity, regular sexual activity with your spouse, is when you are devoting yourself to prayer. Now imagine, in some of our circumstances, some of you are not praying that much, right? Have you been faithful in this? This should be one of those commandments that we delight to obey. That's the positive side of the seventh commandment. That's what what the seventh commandment is protecting, is sex within marriage. If you are married, your job is to protect your marriage and sexuality by having sex. Sex in marriage is like oil to an engine. Without it, uh, the friction between all the moving parts is going to burn out the motor. Sex in a marriage builds intimacy, and it renews the promises that govern that intimacy. Sex is good for your relationship. Do it. Now, the last bit is for everybody, whether you're married or single. First, do not view, read, or otherwise engage with pornography. Typically, women need to guard against romance and literary porn more than men, and men need to guard against visual pornography more than women. But the truth is, we all need to guard against all types of pornography. Pornography is the epitome of sexuality misused. It contributes to sexual addiction, sexual slavery, and sexual assault. It impacts those statistics, I can say that word, it impacts the statistics which bear out the truth that one in four women are sexually assaulted, as well as one in six men. And those are just the reported instances. We live in a culture that is sex-crazed, untethered and out of control. It celebrates sex misused sexuality rather than mourning it as it should. And so we must put protections in our lives. We must put protections around our ears and our eyes. I mean, if you're going to read a book, read a synopsis before you pick it up and ask, is this going to be helpful for my marriage and my relationship with my spouse and with my Lord? Put internet filters on your computer to inhibit pornographic material from presenting itself to you and to keep yourself from seeking out pornographic material. 30% 30% of all internet data is pornographic. That's more traffic than, to porn sites than Netflix, Twitter, and Amazon combined. Some of you contribute to that traffic. And you need to stop. You need to change and turn from this sin that has a grip on you. I mean, if that's you, if you're struggling with pornography, talk to someone you can trust. I mean, put Triple X Church or Covenant Eyes or some other program on your computer to help you against this sin. I mean, some of you might need to put your computer in a public space or maybe even get rid of the internet altogether. I think it's better, far better, to be inconvenienced than it is to be deceived about the nature and the severity of your sin. Brothers and sisters, utilize the gift of the church. Forge strong friendships. Be accountable to one another. Confide in one another. Be honest about your weakness. Be honest about your own vulnerabilities and put in your life personal safeguards that help you to honor God with your sexuality. Protect yourself and marriage by defining your life forward and then living it backward, right? Right? have a plan in place, have a long-term perspective and long-term protections that ensure you will not fall victim to the grip of sexual sin. Lastly, I think it will help us to protect marriage if we remember uh, another truth from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 down there in verse 18. We read these words. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, Honor God with your body. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Every part of being a Christian is a derivative of that one verse. Our bodies were purchased for God when Christ died on the cross. Now they are with, inhabited by God's Spirit. This means that whatever we do with our bodies is directly related to our fellowship with the triune God. Friends, God cares about what you do with your body. I think this is illustrated well for us when we set Romans 1 right next to Romans 12. Let's look at Romans 1, 24 to 25. Here's what we read. God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. Th- those at war with God put themselves under the wrath of God by following their hearts into sexual impurity. They dishonor God with their bodies. Now, now let's contrast that with Romans twelve, starting at verse one. This is what we read: Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and what the perfect will of God is. Those who have experienced the saving mercy of God offer their whole lives in worship to God. They honor God with their bodies. If we understand you are not your own, you were bought at a price, then it will be our joy to submit ourselves to God's design for marriage and sexuality. I do want to revisit this idea that every sin we commit, anytime you sin, whatever it is, is ultimately spiritual adultery against God. Uh, What you do when you sin is you are choosing another lover rather than the God who reconciled you to himself through Christ. You are leaving the greatest treasure, the greatest love there is in the world for lesser pleasures and lesser lovers. This is pictured for us in the book of Hosea. Uh, in the book that bears his name, Hosea is commanded to take a wife, uh, and God tells him of the front end she's going to be unfaithful to you. Hosea's marriage then serves as a metaphor that vividly portrays the unfaithfulness of God's people to His covenant. I love that the scene after uh, Gomer is Hosea's wife's name. She, she's run off, and uh, she's sold her. She's just slept around, uh, really lost everything. She's been sold into slavery. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is what God tells Hosea. He says, Go again. Show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. We don't have all the details of, of how this plays out in Hosea chapter 3, but we can imagine uh, what Gomer might have looked like in tattered clothing, what she might have felt being desperate and enslaved, and what she might have thought as she saw her husband approaching from a distance to speak with the man who owned her, the man who owned her as a result of her own foolishness. I mean, we, we can imagine the regret and the pain that must have flooded her heart as she thought of what could have been. And we can imagine what it might have been like, what her shock might have been like, what her joy might have been like when Hosea obeyed God and bought her back to himself. He bought her out of slavery. He was loyal and faithful despite her adultery, despite her unfaithfulness. Brothers and sisters, we are gomers, all of us. We are all guilty of abandoning God for other and lesser loves again and again and again. And we are all loved perfectly by God in Christ. See, our God sees the depths of our hearts and goes to the depths of hell on the cross to save us from ourselves and from our slavery to sin. Jesus Christ loves you, gave himself for you, so that you might be freed from your slavery for relationship with God. When you get this, it will change you from guilty and condemned to saved and changing. When you realize that you are not your own, that Jesus bought you with a price, the price of his life, you can't help but give him your life. When you see Jesus dying to make you his treasure, you will make him your treasure. It is this gospel that Jesus lived in your place, died in your place, and rose from the grave so that you could have a place in God's family, It's this gospel, this reality that marriage and sexuality shadow. It is this gospel that you undermine when you engage in sexual sin. Because of the goodness of the gospel, we long to keep the the seventh commandment. We long to protect marriage and sexuality because they teach us about God. I'm going to close with a a story uh, that I read in a book a long time ago. Uh, and I think it illustrates the beauty of the gospel in each of our lives. And so there, w- there was a man and a woman who had been uh, married for many years. And their marriage was average. It wasn't great. Uh, intimacy was not great. Partially, though, this lack of intimacy was the consequence of uh, a deep, dark secret held by the woman. You see, she had had a sustained affair uh, throughout their engagement in the first couple years of their marriage. She, she'd since repented of it and ended the affair it had been several years before, but but still she, she felt that she needed to tell her husband. The guilt was unbearable. And so one day she decided that she could not hide it anymore. And she sat him down in the living room on the couch. And they could both feel the tension in the room. And she confessed to him. Scared that scared that he would leave her, she confessed her sin. The man was devastated and responded by quietly getting up and leaving, walked out of the house. woman thought she might never see him again and, and began circling through. What could she do to explain to her children what has happened to their father and why they would be living in different houses? And, and she just began to ruminate on all those different possibilities. But then several hours later, her husband came back into the house, once again silent, carrying a bag, He grabbed her by the hand and took her to their bedroom where he quietly undressed her. And then out of the bag that he was carrying with him, he brought a satin nightgown, pure white, just purchased. He put it on her and said, I choose to see you as Jesus sees you. Church, faith in Christ puts all of us in white. Forgiveness can be had. You need to only confess your need of Jesus. And he will make you his bride and purify you. He will make Isaiah 1.18 true of you. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. Friends, let us rejoice in the wonderful relationship we have with God, this exclusive relationship that's marked by intimacy and governed by His never-failing promises. Let us delight in the reality to which all marriages point, which is the marriage between Christ and His church, the consummation of all things, that great feast at the end of time when Jesus will make all things new. Let us be a people that live with this hope that preach this gospel by protecting marriage and proclaiming Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that your word cuts us to the core and that it breaks our bones sometimes. We also thank you that your word breaks bones in order that they might heal. Father, we pray for for those of us that are hurting this morning and enduring the consequences of our sin, being confronted with it, that, that you would break and reset our bones, that we might heal, we might confess our sin and come to you and experience the forgiveness that you promised to those who love you and put their faith in you. Lord, we thank you that we can confide in one another, we can, you've put us in a community that can help us to become more like you. Thank you for allowing us to be the sheep of your pasture, to be called your people, your bride. Thank you for cleansing our sin and putting us all in white, that we might be united to you forever. This is good news. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.